much, Ed. I appreciate it. It's good to see everybody, Mel, everybody, Arlene. It's so good to see you guys, Miriam. It's been a while. Um, we're all just getting a little bit older, right? Um, I'm super thankful for the opportunity to be able to share this morning. Uh, yeah, it's been, you know, definitely prefer the uh, warm desert uh, summers than probably the cold Michigan winters. Amen. Um, I don't know that I, you know, I, we're thankful for the opportunity. God is definitely, we're just trying to follow his leading in this next step of our journey. Um, yeah, it was, it was a blessing to be here for about a year. I've been at Thunderbird Academy. This will be, I'm finishing up my fifth year there. Um, and it's been a blessing to work with young people. They just have a sincerity of heart. Uh, they pull no punches. You know, with kids, it's kind of, it's kind of what you see is what you get. And uh, that's what I've enjoyed about working with uh, young people so much. Even as I reflect on my time being here at Peoria Sin Cities, I remember one of the things that scared me the most was helping to teach prayer meeting. Like, uh, you know, Pastor Greg told me, you have to teach for a full 50 minutes. Like, for a full 50 minutes? I can barely talk for, uh, I can barely talk for about, you know, 20 to 30 minutes for a sermon. A full 50 minutes? And uh, little did I know, about a year later, I'd be teaching four 50-minute classes at Thunderbird Academy. So the Lord was just kind of preparing me. Uh, he was like, well, if you can't do one, how about four? Uh, we'll give you four of them. So he has a sense of humor. But it's definitely been a blessing. You know, it's one of those things is, you know, as you teach and preach and you participate in ministry, you learn more about yourself, your calling, and you learn more about the Bible. So it's definitely, definitely been a blessing. I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 18 this morning. If you'd like to join me there in your Bibles, Matthew, the first book of the gospel, Matthew chapter 18. Um, I've been going through the book, uh, The Desire of Ages. I don't know if you guys have ever read that book. It's an incredible book. I found myself as a young person trying to read The Desire of Ages for a very long time, and I struggled for a very long time to finish it. It's such a beautiful book, but it's over 80 chapters, over 80 chapters. That's a lot of chapters. Um, I think when I was a, when I was a kid, the, the longest book I had read by Ellen White was Steps to Christ, and that's like eight chapters. Uh, Desire of Ages over 80 chapters, so it's definitely been difficult to finish it, but this year I took up the challenge of trying to do it. So I'm in chapter like 68 or 69 now, uh, so we're getting through it, but it's such, a, it's such a beautiful book. And starting in Matthew chapter 18, I want to set the scene a little bit here. Uh, one of the beautiful things about this story um, that we're about to uh, kind of embark on in Scripture is that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples about what it means to be the greatest. What it means to be the greatest. When I was growing up and I was just a little kid, I remember I wanted to be the fastest. When I was growing up and I was a little kid, I wanted to be the smartest. Everything's a competition when you're, when you're a kid. When I was in the first grade and I was six years old, I couldn't wait to be seven years old. I would, my, my peers would ask me, how old are you, Zach? And I would say, I am six and a half. Like, does, does it really matter? Like, you know, <laughs> I feel like as we begin to get older, we're like, no, we're okay. <laughs> Maybe we want to be a little bit younger, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's just one of those things. And I, I just remember when I was younger, always wanting to be older. Uh, my dad was a, a, a police officer for the Phoenix Police Department for about seven years uh, before he went to go work for the government. And I remember I'd put my dad's like belt on with all his equipment. I put my dad's vest on. I was like, man, I 
can't wait to be like him when I get older. And as I get older, I'm like, man, I, I wish I, I miss being a kid again. Um, it's just, it, it, it changes. But, you know, um, being a kid, you have this childlike faith where you get to just innocently and freely enjoy everything. You get to enjoy everything. I remember even when I grew up, I didn't necessarily enjoy going to school. I didn't want to necessarily go into school. Actually, I struggled in school when I was a young child. But I remember one of the things I really enjoyed doing growing up was playing school. I never actually really liked school, but I liked playing school. I don't know if anyone can relate. Um, it's like it's like when you when you uh, it's like when you uh, get your job and you're like you know some of us enjoy our jobs but some of us I think more so enjoy the idea of our jobs uh, but when you you know growing up that was me and so I remember I had my mom take me to the library to the Phoenix Library man just we went to this massive library so huge so many books but it's so funny because I couldn't even read a book I was uh, you know reading and writing were were one of my struggles growing up. But I would get all these books and I would go home and I would sit down by my fireplace and I would pretend to read each of these books as if I knew what I was reading. It was so exciting until I went to school and had to do the real thing. Uh, it wasn't as exciting. But playing the role of it, almost imagining it, sometimes felt more fun than actually doing it. And I wonder how often we do this with God spiritually. Sometimes we like the idea of being with Him. We like the idea of what life could be like with Him, being in a relationship with Him, enjoying what it means to actually serve Him. But even His disciples came face to face with this experience when they were confronted with the reality that to serve Him would require some hardships. Like it's fun to think about it, and sometimes it's even fun to do it, but there are other times when we really go through it, it's very difficult. We have to be resilience even in this time of you know COVID I think everyone's kind of over this you know this whole COVID situation and everything we've gone through but especially our young people oh, working at Thunderbird Academy the Lord has blessed us in phenomenal ways numbers have stayed about the same you know we've been in person since August uh, you know during the whole pandemic but what was very interesting some of the challenges that we found young people facing around the United States around the US is being at home and trying to do remote learning. Now, don't get me wrong, some of our students love remote learning. They love just kind of waking up out of bed and going straight to school, right? Not having to get up early or get ready. They just love crawling out of bed or staying in bed while they do homework and while they practice learning. But we actually had to get some students out of state because they could just not, they, for some reason, playing school and acting like you were going to school was different for them than actually being in school. There's a blessing when you're around people, right, church family? There's a blessing when you're able to gather together in community and to enjoy what you have as a church family, with your family, with the community. And so, in this situation we're about to get into, Jesus is trying to wake the disciples up to the reality of what it actually means to be a Christian, what it really means to begin to live this spiritual reality of Christianity. You know, I think of famous people all the time. One of the people that I just, I was obsessed with at the beginning of this year is a guy by the name of Jeff Bezos. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Jeff Bezos. He's, he's the creator of Amazon. He was the CEO, the guy who built Amazon. 
and he's one of the richest men in the world. It's between him, him and Elon Musk. They keep fighting for that, that, that position of richest person in the world. And here's a funny thing about Jeff Bezos. Jeff Be Bezos is a man who's probably accomplished it all. They say he has enough money to, if you could, to buy entire states. Theoretically, people speculate that he has enough money to end world poverty and then some more. Now, I don't know how true that actually is, but here's what's funny about Jeff Bezos. There was a time where Jeff Bezos felt like he had it all. He was the greatest. He imagined what would it be like to be on top of the world and he had absolutely everything. One of the most successful companies in the world, not just America, in our time. And one day he, he decided to, you know, he, he wasn't going to retire, but he took a step back from Amazon. He had been working for so long. He had built up so much success. You know, he was, he was done with it. And so the story goes is that Jeff Bezos took a step back. He took a step back from what he was doing. And this is what I find so interesting. He wanted to pursue one of his dreams, was, which was to travel to every beach in the entire world. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like fun to me. I would love nothing more than to take some time and to travel with my beautiful wife to every beach in the entire world. I would happily do that, okay, if I could afford to do it, all right? So he did this. He did that in about a year, even less than a year. He successfully traveled to every beach, spent time there, went to the nicest resorts, and guess what happened when he was done with it? He was bored. He was bored. He did it all. He did what he thought he wanted to do, and when he got done with it, he's like, well, now what? Like, I have it all. What more could I possibly do? And so he went back to Amazon to begin working again. There's something about this idea of being the greatest, imagining what it would be like to actually live this experience that's so attractive and enticing. But what we see in this world time and time again with celebrities and with influencers and all different types of important people in our culture is that when they get there, it's never enough. There's always more. You know, a, a, very, a very intelligent and a very well-respected comedian, Dave Chappelle, his father once told him, Dave, when you get there, and you get to the big leagues, and you're funny, and you're making money off of comedy, he said, just pick a number. He's like, what? Just pick a number. And what he meant by that is it's never going to be enough. So at some point in your life, you have to decide, when is it enough? When is it enough? I think of Muhammad Ali. He was one of the greatest boxers of our time. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. I was a boxer growing up and I thoroughly enjoyed boxing uh, in my younger years when I was a teenager. I enjoyed boxing and I looked up to Muhammad Ali as one of the greatest. And then there was this young man named George Foreman. Maybe you've heard of his grills. Maybe you have one of his grills, a George Foreman grill. Uh, George Foreman was this young, up-and-coming boxer, ready to be the greatest. He wanted it. And as he fought Muhammad Ali in the ring, who was much older than him, he still lost to him. And that loss so impacted George Foreman that when he went back into his green room to rest and recalibrate and think about how he just got defeated by the world heavyweight champion, Muhammad Ali, he couldn't do anything but drop to his knees and pray. It was in being defeated in his process of being the greatest 
that he dropped to his, his knees and prayed to the greatest name that there ever was or ever will be. He prayed to God that day and gave his life to Jesus in a small room after being defeated by Muhammad Ali. You can almost say Muhammad Ali was a secret blessing. You could almost say he unintentionally was doing ministry by bringing George Foreman to his knees. Because that day George Foreman became a Christian and began to believe. Because in his effort to become the greatest, in his effort to secure power, he realized that there's only one that is the greatest, and that is Jesus. The name above all names, the name under which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, you, our God. I'm so thankful, church family, that we don't have to fill that role of being the greatest. Jesus already does that. As a matter of fact, what does the Bible say very beautifully when we get to heaven? It says we are given these crowns and we get the privilege of casting these crowns at Jesus' feet because it was all about him. We didn't do anything, it was all him. We just got to receive the blessing of what he was doing. I heard it repeated time and time again this morning during the service, uh, Grady mentioned it, Ed mentioned it, this idea that we get to receive the promises of Abraham. They're bestowed upon us. They're given to us, passed down to us. We didn't earn it, God simply provided it. So we don't have to worry about being the greatest this morning. But if you join me in Matthew chapter 18, the disciples are wanting to know, what does it take to be the greatest? In Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 1, it says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest? Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You would assume that they would think already it would be God <laughs> or Jesus. But like any student, like any teacher knows, uh, when a student asks a question, sometimes there's an underlying question behind the question. They want to know, how can they be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here's the thing about our hearts. The Bible says that God has put eternity in the hearts of you and me. And the hearts of humanity exists eternity. So this means that that void, that space cannot be filled by any finite thing. Only some eternal being could possibly fill that void within you and me. This is why it will never be enough, church family. This is why we will never make enough. This is why we can never do enough. There's not enough time in our lives or in the day to do everything because we weren't meant to do everything. We were meant to fill that void with something eternal. That's God, it's that God space that exists within you and me. But until God becomes our everything, nothing will fill that space with you and me. A relationship, a job, an opportunity, whatever that thing may be, until God is king of our hearts and fills that place, nothing will truly satisfy you or me. And so the disciples, they're with Jesus and they're arguing, who will be, who, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, right before Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, Peter just got done speaking to Jesus about taxes. 
he got done speaking to Peter about taxes. Now in the Romans time, in the Roman time, uh, whose inscription, whose face was kind of inscribed on their coins? Caesar. It was Caesar. There was even a part in scripture where God says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. To God's what is God's. And so even in that time, they acknowledged there was an earthly power. It was Rome. It was Caesar. And so the disciples are able to look at people like Caesar, the greatest to ever do it. Alexander the Great, these, these young leaders who are taking over the world, holding world power, doing all these amazing things. And they say, hey, if they're the greatest here, what does it take to be the greatest up there? What does it take to be the greatest there? They want to know. Look at what these guys are accomplishing. Look at the power that they hold. Who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So looking at verse 2 of Matthew chapter 18, the Bible says, Then Jesus called a little child to himself, and he placed this child in the middle of all of them, and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He flips the script on them, church family. They're looking at someone like Caesar, whom they pay their taxes to, whom they respect. This person, the greatest to ever do it. And Jesus says, you're not supposed to be like him. You're supposed to be like them. Unless you be converted and become like a little child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, right now, you might be concerned about who is the greatest in heaven, but I'm just trying to get you through the doors of heaven. Let's start with the basics first. Now, what does it mean to be like a child? Is he stressing immaturity here? I don't think so. When I was growing up, I was probably as immature as they came. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I didn't enjoy while I was growing up was homework. No one likes homework, amen? Um, no, maybe some people do. Some people are great at homework. I didn't enjoy homework growing up. And so one of the things that I did, I don't want to give anyone any ideas here. I don't think we've got too many young people in here. Uh, one of the things I did uh, growing up with homework is uh, I, I, would, I would never do it. That's what I did with it, nothing. <laughs> I did nothing with it. But the one thing I would do with it to try to be sneaky is I would take my homework, crumple it up, and throw it away with the trash when I took the trash out. So that way my parents would begin to try to dig through my stuff. Zachary, where is your homework? Well, I don't know. Your teacher said she sent you home with the homework. No, she didn't. Going through my backpack, they're, they're trying to find the evidence. I believe this is why my dad became an FBI agent. He, had, he wanted to uncover the truth about my, where that homework went. He still has not discovered it. It's the greatest, greatest story in Sorovic history. But I would take this homework and throw it away. Why? Because I didn't want to do it. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you don't have to turn there. I'll go ahead and read it. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I understood like a child. I thought like a child. But when I became a man, I put away those childish things. So Paul is not saying that we need to behave like a child and live in immaturity and never grow up and face reality. No, no, no. He's not saying like that. So he must 
be referencing another way of living. Looking back, continuing on, on verse 4. He says, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is truly the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What do we need to do? We need to humble ourselves. It's not about securing power or greatness for any of us or making a great name for any of us. It's about becoming so humble that we're dependent upon God for everything. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't take care of ourselves. This doesn't mean that we aren't responsible for our own spirituality. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't be responsible for things, but the humility of a child is trusting in the parents that are raising them. It's humbly listening to them and following them. You probably remember yourself as a child, probably, you know, having struggles with listening to your, you know, listening to your parents or listening to those in authority. But the fact is, is you're younger and you really have no rights. You got to listen to the person who is over you. You have to listen to the person who is feeding you. Okay? Don't bite the hand that feeds you. All right? Uh, you have no choice but to listen to them. In, in, in Jesus' culture, it was even more so. Children had no rights. They're innocent. They are dependent upon their parents. They, ha they cannot do anything in and of themselves. They're completely and wholly dependent upon their parents for a certain quality of life. And so when Jesus says, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we need to humble ourselves before him. Our goal isn't to be him. Our goal is to humble ourselves and acknowledge where we stand in our relationship with him. Where we are with him. Now, I think of someone in scripture who wanted to be him. Anybody know who that was? The enemy. Turning to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 14, the prophet Isaiah gives this story, kind of like this prophetic history of Lucifer and his struggle with wanting to be God. Isaiah chapter 14. If you look at uh, verses 12, I'm going to read through 12 to 14. Isaiah says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side to the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet, God says, you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Is this the one who shook the kingdoms? Is this the one who made the world a wilderness? Is this him? What do those on high think of him? They think very little of him. Because those who humble themselves will be exalted. But those who exalt themselves will be humble. And looking at the story of redemption and the history of mankind, Lucifer has always been trying to do one thing, get us to be God. 
That was never our responsibility. God is God. We were meant to be His children, to come to Him, to ask of Him, to receive the precious promises that can only come from Him, to be benefactors of it. It's too exhausting to be Him. As a matter of fact, Lucifer tried it, but he could never do it because Lucifer is not Him. When you think back to the creation of the world of Genesis chapter 3, the enemy deceived Adam and Eve into thinking life could be so much better if they just did their own thing. That they could be God. But what they realized, they, well, his exact words was, they could be like God. But what Genesis 1 and 2 tells us is they were already created in the image of God. I'm here to tell you this morning, church family, as a reminder that we were created in God's image. All we're supposed to do is assume that identity. We shouldn't have to force ourselves to be like Him. We were already created in His image to be like Him. We just have a certain place in our relationship with Him where He is King and Lord of our lives. He is the greatest thing to happen in our lives. We play a minor role in our story with Him even though we are the apple of His eye. This does not diminish our significance. In fact, I believe it enhances it because we have a place in his story. Now, I love movies, okay? I enjoy watching movies. Growing up, my dad, oh my goodness, we had a home theater system. Huge screen TV, ginormous. We had movie posters and we, we, we just loved movies. Now, one thing, I would, one thing I noticed when I would watch these movies as I love the characters that would play the certain roles in these movies. And I used to think about it. What if any other character filled those roles? What if, a, what if one of the background characters, what if one of the, the side characters, what if, what if one of the import, unimportant characters in these movies tried to steal the show? It wouldn't be the same because it was never about them. This is all about God. It's all about Him. He's the main character in this story, and we exist to glorify Him. It's this ridiculous community of love is where we glorify Him, and then He loves on us, and then we love Him, and it's just this continual cycle of constantly loving Him. Now, before we get any ideas of God, for being this like selfish, this, this guy who needs to be in the spotlight, whose ego needs to be stroked, and who needs all the attention of the universe, we need to get a clear picture of what his heart actually is like. If you turn with me to Philippians chapter two, Philippians chapter two, Paul writes about Jesus beautifully. It's pretty powerful, Philippians chapter two. And he talks about this idea of unity through humility. The only way for us to really begin to experience the life God has for us is to become like a child. We've, we've identified that already. To become humble. But it, what's to say? Why doesn't God assume that position? Why can't God humble himself maybe every now and then? Why can't God be humble as well? Why is it just us? Philippians chapter 2. Looking at verse 5, this is what Paul says. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be made equal with God. 
meaning he who is the created in the very image of God he who has existed before time with God did not consider that position as something that is supposed to be attained Lucifer tried to steal it the people with the Tower of Babel they tried to take it but what does Jesus do with this position what does he do with it verse 7 he made himself of no reputation he took the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on the cross the word is what did God do to himself he humbled himself and we should have the same mind that he had he didn't consider that position with God as something to be taken or as something to be robbed but as a matter of fact he gave it up for you and me humbled himself to the point of a servant even serving you and me even to the point of being humiliated the Bible says despised and rejected by men I always tell my students that there was nothing attractive about Jesus if you read the prophecies of Isaiah what do we know about Jesus it says there is nothing desirable about him that men should want him what I tell my students is that he probably wasn't good-looking he put himself at a great disadvantage even think about it like this church family Jesus could have come as Superman ready to go in full power and in full array but instead he too humbled himself to be like a child an infant vulnerable also needing to be dependent upon earthly parents so if Jesus honored his father and mother we have to honor our father and mother Jesus so humbled himself to show us it's not about power because it'll never satisfy it's about humility and finding where do we fit in in the plan of eternity because that's where we're really gonna thrive that's where we're really gonna shine and we're gonna bring so much glory to God it's going to be amazing and it gives us a life worth living looking at verse 9 because he humbled himself of Philippians chapter 2 because he humbled himself the Bible says therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven of those on earth of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father it's all about him it's always been about him where life gets confusing and where it gets complicated is when we make it about you and me this doesn't mean that we don't have the opportunity of following what we're wanting the Bible says delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the what he will give you the desires of your heart the Lord we more to delight in him the more we'll actually discover what we're really wanting and what we're really seeking the world has clearly shown us and we can see it in the life of the enemy that what we think life should be on our own terms isn't that great as a matter of fact it's very exhausting and it can become very embarrassing but when we find our place and our position with the king of kings then we begin to fit in and we begin to thrive 
because now we're living life as it should be. Matthew chapter 19 in closing. Matthew chapter 19 in closing. This is the second time that Jesus has to address the disciples about this same thing. And I believe it's beautiful. It's beautiful because of where it's positioned in Scripture. In verse 13, it says, The little children were brought to him that they may put his hands, that he may put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. The disciples prevented the, the women, the children, the parents, the family from coming to Jesus. You know, if Jesus was the greatest in history, if Jesus was one of the greatest people in history, and he was performing miracles, the deaf could hear, the blind could see, the mute could speak, the, you know, the, the, the paralyzed could walk, the dead could rise. Surely this guy was a miracle working person. There was something different about him. If I saw him, I would want to bring my child to him. But because of everything he was doing, the disciples, they thought anybody, just anybody could not come unto him. Maybe a king, maybe Caesar could approach him. But a little child? No. That would lower him and our value. It would diminish the way we see him. They did not want to tarnish the reputation of Jesus by a child coming to him. So the disciples refused the children to come to him. Now, I want to think soberly for a minute and think with me, church family. How often do you and I, without even thinking about it, sometimes prevent people from coming to Jesus? How often do you, do you and I might prevent somebody unintentionally by coming to Jesus, either because of what we think about them, either because we believe they're supposed to be, uh, they're supposed to behave some way, or they're supposed to look like something, or they're supposed to have some type of reputation or some type of prestige before they come into the church, they're supposed to look away or act a certain way before they can come unto Him. The disciples, they meant well but they were preventing those who needed him from coming to him. It is my prayer that we acknowledge it is not our responsibility to put ourselves in a position where we're judging somebody and preventing them from coming to the King of Kings. The book of Hebrews says, come boldly before the throne of grace to receive the grace that you need in your time of need. It is not our responsibility to prevent someone from coming, coming boldly to the King of Kings. Jesus tells his disciples, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for as such is the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says he laid his hands on them and departed from there. He wanted to bless him. He wanted to be there with him. In closing, at the end of this story, there's a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. But he comes to Jesus, not for Jesus, but because he wanted to secure for himself eternity. It says, Behold, one came and said to him, verse 16, Good teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. He says, But if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must keep the commandments. So he goes through the commandments. 
But jumping down to verse 20, this young man said to him, all my, all these things I have kept from my youth. I grew up in the church. I did all these things. He said, what is the thing that I still lack? Think about it. No one told him that he was lacking. But the rich young ruler comes to him because he's empty. He has it. He is the greatest. He's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. No one told him he was lacking anything, but he knows he's lacking something. And so when the disciples were amazed that this young man turns away from Jesus, yet Jesus welcomes the little children and blesses them, who then can enter the kingdom of heaven? They were astonished and they said, in verse 25, who then can be saved? And Peter answered and said to him in verse 27, Jesus, we have left everything for you. Therefore, what shall we have? We want to secure something for ourselves. We've been following you. Lord, we've given up so much for you. Was it worth it? If this guy can't get it, what are we going to get from it? Jesus says, assuredly, I tell you, the regeneration, verse 28, when the Son of Man sits on his throne, his glory, you who have followed me will sit there with me, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or anything for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Now, I don't know if Jesus should have said that to him. Like, Jesus is Jesus, so he had, a, he had a reason for saying it. But up when they're about to enter Jerusalem during the time of the crucifixion, when they're about to get into Jerusalem, the disciples are fighting once again about what? Who will be the greatest? And now they're arguing amongst themselves. Because Jesus just said that they're going to sit on 12 thrones and in the next life judge the 12 tribes, they're going to oversee everything. And they liked hearing that. They enjoyed hearing that. Hey, we gave up a lot. We better get our return, our investment on this. But then that still wasn't enough. As they're about to get into Jerusalem and Jesus is about to be sacrificed on the cross, they're arguing amongst themselves who is going to be the greatest now among them. It's never enough. Now Jesus reminds them, yeah, you're going to, you know, you're going to lose your life for my sake. You're going to give up a lot for me. But whether you sit on this throne or that throne, or you do this thing or get that thing, that's not for me to decide, but my Father who is in heaven. Because even Jesus gave up that throne to be able to be here so he could humbly serve you and me. He wasn't worried about securing a position for himself in eternity. He was worried about securing a position for you and me in eternity. So he humbly came here to serve you and to serve me. This is the essence of Christianity. This is what it means to be the greatest. It has less to do with power and more to do with character. More to do with humility. When I was, uh, one of my favorite things growing up, was uh, being line leader, <laughs> being line leader, uh, you know, in the, in the first and second grade, because it didn't matter what my peers thought of me, it didn't matter how they saw me, uh, what my teacher 
decided it was for my week to be line leader. Woo! Get thee behind me. I am the front of the pack. I am the alpha. I am the beginning. You are the omega. You are the end. Get behind me. It didn't matter what you thought of me. I was leading this pack. But it wasn't because I earned it. It wasn't because I deserved it. It was because my teacher decided it. And Jesus, the great rabbi, the teacher of old, will decide what's best for you and me. But we must follow him and serve him in humility.